0: and encouragement. It is my sincerest hope that the reflections that you will hear today on this broadcast will truly touch your heart and in a way show you that your life is worth living. Hello my dear friends and welcome to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today to listen to a little bit of the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Archbishop Sheen has to his records hundreds of thousands of souls, and I think we sometimes look at our own records and think of how many souls do I have that I've brought to Jesus Christ, and yet Fulton Sheen, every week he took to the radio airwaves or the television or, uh, of course, writing another book or a newspaper article. He was always trying to bring souls to Christ. And so uh, today uh, we will, again, experience that uh, personally, of course, as we listen to his wisdom. Uh, and today we're going to talk about the commandments. And um, uh, I'm not going to talk about the commandments. I'm going to let Bishop Sheen talk about the commandments. But uh, we are continuing continuing along in our catechism series and uh, we were talking about marriage last week, uh, but this week uh, we're going to talk about the commandments. And um, I think this is one of the things that we don't uh, really know as well as we should. Uh, if I did a pop quiz and I said to you, all right, list the Ten Commandments, um, uh, would we be able to do that? Um you know, without a cheat sheet, without our cell phone or our tablet beside us. Uh, But again, the Ten Commandments that, uh, again, we should all be following. And so Fulton Sheen will teach us a little bit about the commandments. And in fact, this catechism lesson on the commandment isn't going to be in two parts. So we'll do part one this week and part two next week. Uh, But of course, I I think of that uh, line in Sacred Scripture where Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, uh, so very important. Now we'll start off our uh, broadcast today with a little bit of humor, uh, but also a little bit of seriousness. Uh, Fulton Sheen uh, did a broadcast in the 1950s and the title of the show was Juvenile Delinquency. And, you know, we think of today, there's still many juvenile delinquents. We like to sadly say that almost in every town we find them. Um, And, of course, we have them in our own families, and we need to pray for them. Uh, But Fulton Sheen wanted to talk about that issue, about juvenile delinquency. And so I thought it would be appropriate to share that, because it will then tie nicely into Sheen's lesson on the commandments. Uh, The more we keep the commandments of God the less delinquent behavior will uh, be in society. So it makes sense. It really does. All right, my dear friends, without further ado, may I present to you uh, the wisdom of Archbishop Sheen as he uh, takes us by the hand and will speak to us uh, about juvenile delinquency from his television show, Life is Worth Living. Please enjoy.
1: Friends, we announced last week the subject of youth. Now we're not going to talk about youth who might be the subject of these stories. I heard of a very modern little girl who in class the other day was asked, what is the definition of straight? And she said, no soda. <laughs> and then another little girl that we heard of was very much given to lying and she was given a St. Bernard dog, and she went out and told everyone that she had been given a lion. And the mother said, now you know very well that that is not a lion. Now you go upstairs and say your prayers and tell God you're sorry. And a little while later, the little girl came down, and the mother said, did you do what I told you? She said, yes. But God said that sometimes he finds it hard to tell a dog from a lion. (laughs) It is not those lightly incurable mendacities of which we speak tonight, but rather the serious problem of juvenile delinquency and crime. Crime is reaching major proportions in the United States. For example, at the present time in the United States, there is a murder every 41 minutes. There is rape every 30 minutes. There is a robbery in the United States every seven minutes. There is larceny every 24 seconds. There is an auto theft every two seconds. And in addition to this type of crime, there is also the mythical crime which is seen on television. For example, in one week on certain programs, just one week, this is what happened. There was one man brained with a monkey wrench. A woman was tied to a chair and tortured with carving knives until she died. Four gangsters were shot down in the living room of a colonist. A bartender was murdered in his own saloon. Two strip teasers were sliced to death with razor blades. And two teenagers were beaten to a pulp. There were more murders committed last year on TV than in only six cities of the United States. Children see these crimes, mythical crimes, they see them on their own little programs. For example, there was a survey made of a programs destined for children up to... The third grade. Keep that in mind. Up to the third grade. In the course of one week alone, this is what the children saw from preschool age up to the third grade. They saw 93 murders, 78 shootings, 9 kidnappings, 9 robberies, 44 gunfights, 33 sluggings, 2 knifings, 2 whiplashings, 2 poisonings, and 2 bombings. I wonder if it is realized that Every idea that enters the mind has a tendency to work itself out into act. That means that this crime which they see creates at least in their little minds a potential toward action. But In regard to the subject of youth, it is to be borne in mind, for example, that 51% ...of the auto thefts in the United States are committed by youth under 20 years of age. 30% of the robberies committed in the United States... ...are attributable to youth 20 years of age and under. 11% of all the assaults and homicides in the United States... ...are due to youth 20 years of age or under. One out of every 18 youth in the United States is a juvenile delinquent. What is the cause? We're not interested, uh, particularly, in uh, not interested in uh, conditions. We're only interested in a principal cause. Now, principal cause is not a universal and total cause. There will be individual instances where the principal cause does not apply. But the principal cause of juvenile delinquency is the home. Just take, for example, the subject of languages and cleanliness in the home. Does your child speak English instead of Chinese or German or French? If he does, it's solely on account of the home. And then the kind of English that he speaks depends upon the home. Did he say you all? Did he say Harvard Yard? All of that is an influence of the home. Even the accent very often comes from the home. Cleanliness of the child. Habits of washing his face, cleaning his teeth, combing his hair. One little boy that I know of was asked by his mother, "Did did you wash your face? He said, yes. How do you know it's clean? Did you look in the mirror? He said, no, I looked at the towel. <laughs> now, if a home determines language and habits such as cleanliness and politeness, it certainly determines behavior. And there are three kinds of home that help produce delinquency. These three types of homes are homes where the parent may be characterized by these that lead to delinquency. One, doting parents. Second, drinking parents. Third, discordant parents. These are the three homes that constitute or prepare dispositions in a child for juvenile delinquency. First, the doting parent. The doting parent is the parent who believes that the child should have everything he wants. So Willie's house is full of toys. The Parents never believe in reprimanding or scolding or punishing the child. The mother said, I would be afraid to spank Willie because he might hate me. They are indifferent. They do not care whether the child comes or goes. There's no supervision, no correction. The assumption is that every instinct and every urge and every libido of the child is good, and therefore he ought to express himself. we will say that after all, you leave the flowers in the forest to grow for themselves, and therefore you allow children to grow up by themselves without teaching them any form of self-denial or any form of restraint. Parents of this particular kind have no philosophy of life, hence, they're not able to give it to their children. The result is that in that kind of a home, the child soon learns to affirm his ego. And even as a youngster, he learns the value of the tyranny of tears. All he has to do to get something is to go into a tantrum. and He will be bought off. Now what kind of a, of a youth is produced by this kind of a parent? There is a predisposition in a youth that is raised by doting and indifferent parents. First of all, to be jaded. He has had every single emotion of his childhood satisfied. When he reaches the age of 12 and begins to shift for himself, he's already in search of thrills. Maybe the thrill will be alcohol. Maybe marijuana, marijuana, cigarettes. It could even be murder. Remember that one of the greatest crimes that was committed in our generation was committed by a boy who came from a rich family and who said, I murder just to have the thrill of killing And in order that I might be said to have committed the perfect crime, he was satisfying his ego, selfishness. That was the kind of training, if it can be called training, that he received in his own home. And then this child, too, would have a predisposition to thieving. Remember, thieving is not done by youth because of something they need. It is done to satisfy their own ego. That, incidentally, is why juvenile delinquency is not confined solely to the poor. It's creeping up into the middle-aged group. The rich have a better way of protecting very often their youth from exposure. As Augustine said, who once himself was a juvenile delinquent... St. Augustine said, I stole not because I needed something, but simply because of the thrill of theft. And youth who come from this kind of a home where there is no discipline and no restraint and no training are the ones who insist that the world owes them a living. They owe the world something. And this kind of home is producing irresponsible youth. who would incidentally prepare for a state that would do everything for them as their own parents did everything for them when they were younger. And the nurse state is the totalitarian state. Then there is the second kind of home, the drinking, parent or parent. Where there is drinking... Poor child the himself. He has to tiptoe about the house, afraid of waking the intoxicated parent. Nothing is on schedule. His meals, time of getting up, is going to bed. He never grows up to know what the normal is. He almost begins to believe that the normal is something extraordinary. He's so much neglected that he begins after a while to love the neglect because he discovers that his parents are fighting. There's only one that drinks. The drinking father excites the mother. It's the drinking mother She excites the father. Everywhere in the home, violence, fighting, aggressiveness. There is nothing that so much develops a bad conscience as excessive drinking. Just as the alcoholic will beat his wife or the husband, whichever the case may be so, both of them will beat the child. The child grows up frustrated without any love, without any affection. There's a predisposition in this child to become later on something like a kind of a volcano. The volcano, at the surface, seems quiet and tranquil. Down here at the bottom are seething fires. And so this youth on the surface seems meek and gentle, but it is only seeming because he's always on the defensive. He's never been loved. He's been always blamed and accused. But down beneath, there's a violence, a hatred. I was told yesterday of a seven-year-old boy, six-year-old boy, who said of his father, "That if I were strong enough, I would kill him. The father was an alcoholic. And this kind of youth, because of his home, ...will produce, is apt to produce, he is disposed to two kinds of crimes. He's disposed to crime against property, and he's disposed to crime against persons. First of all, the crimes against property. For example, the destruction of schools and homes. Anything that he can lay his hands on. And why? Simply because he saw property in his own home issues. He saw the money that could have been spent on himself... ...to buy him clothes, to send him to school, spent on alcohol. And he begins to hate property so it goes out to destroy it. The FBI recently reported of a boy who did $2,500 worth, worth of damage in his school. And why? Because he's seen property misused in his own home by drinking, parents. And incidentally, the parents ought to be made to pay for it. Not only that, but this youth is predisposed to crimes against persons He never had any love in his own home, never knew the meaning of affection. He saw either the mother seized or the father seized. And so he begins to think that love is always something that has to be stolen and grasped and seized. And that is why he's a potential for the crime of rape and assault. And that explains why, when a youth is arrested for assault and rape or the murder of a young girl... The explanation will be he seemed so meek and so gentle. Sure he did. That was the defense apparatus he built up in an alcoholic home. And then there comes the third D. The discordant parents, parents who quarrel. with no interest whatever in their children, who go about their own particular duties, never showing therefore any affection. There may be even a spending of six months with one parent and then a six months with the other parent. There may not be a natural home. The child may have another name that is no natural parent. And do you think children do not know that? Do you think they do not feel it? Children are much wiser than adults. They see many more things than adults know. And that was why our blessed Lord said of the mouth of the mouths of babes and sucklings. Come wisdom. Every child knows that he is entitled to natural parents. He knows that the one, the one who planted the seed... And the one who gave birth to him are those who should care and nourish for him. A child, not consciously, unless he's had religious training, and then there's not much difficulty or chance of delay juvenile delinquency. But a child, even though he has never had a rational knowledge of God, unconsciously, Knows that the parents take for him the place of God. Now, when he sees maybe infidelity in his own home, father out with someone else, or the mother out with someone else, while he's neglected, what predispositions are created in him as regards character? By instinctively knowing that they take the place of God, a youth of that kind begins to hate God. He hates religion. And why? Simply because the only God he knew failed him. The FBI recently reported the case of of a girl 14 years of age who was burning churches. She came from that kind of a home. And it is from this type that come the future persecutors of religion. And then there is another product of that particular home because the child never had any trust, confidence, genuine love, genuine affection. He hates law. He saw law broken. He saw the natural law of the home broken, namely his own right to a father and mother. And so he hates law. He hates order. He hates all those who stand for law and order. He's the youth that beats up the police. Not only that, he's also the youth who's seen in his own home a change of loyalty. And if he bears a different name than the one who gave him life, He's predisposed, I'm not saying he will, but he's predisposed to give allegiance to another country than his own America. Are these panties? I will show you some figures that have come to us from Harvard University. They are not fanciful figures. They are very real. And they will prove to you that what I've been saying about the home is very true statistically. Now it has been established, for example, that there are certain effects from the home of the doting and indifferent parents. For example, Harvard has shown that three out of every four delinquents were permitted to come and go as they willed. In their own home, four out of five delinquents had indifferent mothers. Three out of five delinquents had indifferent fathers. As for drinking parents, six out of ten delinquents have fathers who drink to excess. Many have mothers who drink to excess. As regards the discord in parents, three out of five delinquents come from homes where there is discord between parents. Seven out of ten delinquents come from broken homes. What then is the conclusion? The conclusion is there are no juvenile delinquents. There are only delinquent parents. It is the home that is to blame. And when the home is lost, the nation is lost. Just as we begin to surrender the authority and the law and order that ought to prevail in the home, the state begins to pick up the slack. And then we have a totalitarian regime. We are to restore our country to the prestige that it must have among the nations of the world for the sake of the world. Then let there be a restoration of the Fourth Commandment, where there are families that spend ten minutes together in prayer every night, With our children, there is no juvenile delinquency.
0: You are listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, here on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today to listen to some of the wisdom of Archbishop Sheen. And I tell you, at the end of that reflection, he gave us some timely wisdom. Uh, He invited us to pray together every day as a family, And uh, again, some painful uh, words he gave, especially when he spoke about, you know, if you find juvenile delinquents in children and young adults, sometimes you don't have to look far to the parents of those children uh, to find the source. So uh, we need to uh, pray for families. Um, And again, I don't want to say, you know, dysfunctional families, but, you know, families where... The Lord isn't first and foremost in the lives of the family. Uh, That whole, um, you know, beautiful encouragement that was given to us in the gospel to uh, put Christ first, to uh, make God the center of our lives. And uh, again, may the Lord increase and may I decrease all these beautiful sayings that we know to be true, and so let us pray, especially for families. My dear friends, we will have our catechism lesson shortly on the commandments. But before we do that, I want to, of course, um, thank our sponsor, Bishop Sheen today, who have um, again just developed a beautiful website. If you haven't visited yet, please do so at bishopsheentoday.com, and there you'll find hundreds of Sheen's uh, videos and audio recordings. Uh, all at the click of a mouse. You can listen uh, for hours and hours. Everything is a free download, so uh, you can download it into your computer and listen later. Uh, But again, just a great collection of Sheen's wisdom, his television and radio addresses, all there at bishopsheentoday.com. And of course, they've got a fabulous book section with uh, dozens and dozens of titles, uh, all at great pricing. And, of course, they have partnerships with Sophia Institute Press and uh, TAN Books. And you receive discounts from those publishers uh, when you use their promo codes uh, when you check out. And so, again, there is savings for everyone. And, um, again, 25% discount at uh, Sophia Institute Press. Uh, You visit them at sophiainstitute.com and use the promo code SHEEN25 when you check out and you receive 25% off all the books you choose. So uh, they've got thousands of books in stock, and so there's lots of savings there for our listeners here at Radio Maria. And, of course, our good friends at Tan Books offer a 15% discount, which is very generous, Uh, again, using the promo code SHEEN when they check out. And that's all spelled out on the website, bishopsheentoday.com. And so, again, our thanks to our sponsor. So now uh, let us have our catechism lesson where Archbishop Sheen will talk about the commandments. And so, without further ado, may I present to you the Venerable Sheen. Please enjoy.
1: Peace be to you. Have you ever been guilty of speeding? If you were, when you came into the garage after exceeding the speed limit, did you ever bend your head over the steering wheel and weep? Did you ever shoot game out of season? Did it ever cause you great remorse? It is very obvious that here there is a breaking of the law, and there is not just exactly the same kind of feeling that follows the breaking of the law as there is that follows the wounding of someone that we love. We have been insisting all along that the standard and norm of our morality is not just a law, but a person, not something that is prohibited, but rather charity and love. That is why some people will feel greater sorrow for sin than others. It all depends upon how much we love. Suppose you cannot sing. Suppose you could not carry a key on a ring. And you were put into a choir where everyone else could sing. You hit a false note. The director of the choir would look at you with a very sour face, All the other singers would turn toward you and give you a dirty look. Why is it that they act that particular way to you? It is because they feel that discord much more than you do. You are not musical enough to appreciate it. But they are. So too there are some people who do not appreciate the love and the mercy of God. And therefore they are not so much inclined to feel a regret as those who have just a vague concept of deity. I do not mean to say that they are without blame. Just as there was a reality to you hitting a wrong note. I only say that where there is a love of Christ there is, first of all, a refusal to do anything that would wound him and secondly, when we do hurt him we feel a greater contrition and sorrow. That is the difference between law and love. Between sin in the natural order and sin in the supernatural order. Just let me give you a few more differences to explain it. When we are governed solely by law, when we are not in the state of grace, but when we do wrong, we have a sense of guilt. When, however, we are in the state of grace and we sin seriously, we have a sense of pollution, of shame, of defilement. The difference between the two is very much like the remorse of Cain or Judas compared to the remorse of the prodigal son who said that he had sinned against his father. Then too, in the natural order, we are apt to have a fear of temporal punishments. Whereas in the supernatural order of grace, we are governed by a sense of the holiness of God Another difference is that, in the natural order, our sorrow very often extends only to some sins, and particularly the more shameful ones. Not always to such sins as avarice selfishness. But when we are penetrated by the Spirit of Christ, then we even are sorry for our bad motives for our evil thoughts, anything that inspires a bad action. A final difference. In the natural order, the grief for a fault or a sin is often vanishing and temporary, as it was in the case of the judge who heard Paul. Remember sacred scripture says something that is indeed very striking. The dog goes back to his vomit. Sometimes sinners will go back again to their sin simply because they were not penetrated with a keen sense of the reality of sin. If, however, we live in the supernatural order, then there is an enduring conviction of sin. Then we become very much like Peter. It was said that he so much regretted his sin that he had furrows in his cheeks. The tears that he shed for denying our blessed Lord. Our aim then is to imitate the life of Christ himself. Now this does not mean that we have to be born in a stable, that we have to visit Egypt that we have to dispute with our teachers at the age of 12 or that we have to change water into wine or go to a wedding at the age of 30. No. It means that each of us is to do what Christ himself would have done in our place. We are not to copy Christ as, for example, a student will copy a great master in an art gallery. We are rather, as we said, to have the Spirit of Christ in us. This being understood, we now come back to the law that should govern all of our moral life. We repeat it because it is so important. Our Blessed Lord said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, and with thy whole soul, and thy whole mind. This is the greatest of the commandments. And the second is like to this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Notice that all the Ten Commandments were summed up in love. And you never can have love except by and through a person who is opposite you. Now, who is the person that is opposite you? God and neighbor. That is why when we are in love with someone, we speak of our love. As we said before, namely there's a bond uniting the two of us. So that the basis of moral life is an earthly trinity. Just as there is in heaven, the trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, so on earth there is a trinity of moral relations. I, thou, and God. Just as there is a dialogue, between me and you and God. So there is the eternal dialogue of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our blessed Lord, the night of the Last Supper, spoke of the heavenly Trinity as the model of this earthly Trinity of love. These were his words. He was talking about how he revealed the Father's love to us. And he said to his Heavenly Father, that the love thou hast bestowed on me may dwell in them, and I too may dwell in them. You observe, therefore, that the norm of our love of neighbor is not just the love we have for ourselves, but the love that Christ has for us. That's the foundation of love. Another point. These two commands, love God and love neighbor, we said, sum up the ten commands. The Ten Commandments refer to love of God and love of neighbor. The first three commandments are related to God. The last six commandments are related to neighbor. And in between the first three and the last six comes the fourth. Honor thy father and thy mother. And God put this in between the two. Love of God and neighbor. Because the parents in the home take the place of God. And obedience to parents is a very high form of justice. It is related not only to neighbor, but also related to God. When, therefore, we disobey God, we are in some way offending against one of the first three commandments about adoring God, keeping holy his name, keeping holy the Sabbath. Now we are not so much concerned here with telling you about sins, about the vices you have to avoid. What interests us is to increase in you the love of God. In other words, to construct a positive, moral, strong imitation of Christ. Or we will mention the sins in passing, but you will find these sins for your examination of conscience in the particular catechism which we have recommended, and you will also find them in any prayer book where there is an examination of conscience. Now, this is not a complete enumeration of sins against these first three commandments, but they are some of them. Anyone would violate the general commandment of love of God or the first three of the old law if you refuse to recognize God as creator, redeemer, and sanctifier, If there was a hatred of God, failure to worship, failure to attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation, if there was a rebellion against God for the trials and crosses he permitted, if there were such things as idolatry, superstition, blasphemy, Cursing, sacrilege, loss of faith, presumption, despair, dishonoring the Sunday, and the like. But we are not just to avoid these sins. We really must know why should we worship God? Why should we honor him? Why is his name holy? If we understand this, the first commandment to love God with our whole mind and our whole soul, then perhaps we will not fall into any of these sins. That is what we are going to explain. How do you think of God? Do you think of him as someone on a throne who sulks and who pouts and gets angry if you do not go to Mass on Sunday or if you blaspheme? Do you think it makes him unhappy when you do not pay any attention to him? Or do you think that he is a kind of a benevolent grandfather who is indifferent to what you do, who likes to see you go places and do things and have it? Have a good time, regardless of how you do it. No, God is not like either picture or the other. Does he lose something when we do not worship him? Of course not. We do. But first, why worship God? What is worship? Worship is a contraction of worthship. It is a manifestation of the worth in which we hold another person. Worship is a sign of value. You applaud, for example, an actor on the stage. You may applaud an athlete. And when you do so, You're putting a value on his worth. Every time a man takes off his hat to a lady, he is worshipping her. Now what does it mean to worship God? It means to acknowledge in some way his power, his goodness, and his truth. If you do not worship God, what do you worship? Nine times out of ten, it'll be yourself. If there is no God, then you are a God. And if you are a God, I am an atheist. Because I cannot believe in that kind of a God. The basic reason today why there is so little worship of God is because man denies he is a creature. Without a sense of dependence, there can be no worship. But that's the definition of worship. Now, why should you worship God? You have a duty to worship God, not because he will be unhappy if you do not, but because you will be unhappy. Let me prove that to you. Suppose you are a father. Your little boy brings to you at Christmas time a little ten-cent knife that he bought. Do not you value that little knife more than a, a box of very fine cigars from your insurance agent? If you are a mother and you have a little girl, Have you not often received a handful of yellow dandelions from your little daughter? And have they not pleased you more than a number of roses from a dinner guest? Do these trivialities make you any richer? Do you need them? Do you need that knife? Do you need the dandelions? Would you be imperfect without them? No, they're no use to you. Well, why then do you love them? Because your children are worshiping you. Because they are acknowledging your love and your goodness. And by doing so, they are perfecting themselves. In other words, they are developing along the lines of love rather than hate, thankfulness rather than ingratitude, and service rather than disloyalty. They are becoming more perfect children and more happy children. Now, just as you do not need that little knife or those dandelions, neither does God need your worship. But if they're giving us a sign of your worth in your children's eyes, then are not prayer, adoration, worship, a sign of God's worth in our eyes? If you do not need your children's worship, why do you think God needs yours? If their worship is for their perfection, not yours, then may not your worship of God be not for his perfection, but yours. Worship is your opportunity to express devotion, dependence, and love. And in doing so, you make yourself happy. A lover does not give gifts to the beloved because she is poor. He gives gifts to her because she's already, in his eyes, possessed of all gifts. And the more he loves, the poorer he thinks his gifts are. If he gave her a million, he would still think he had fallen short. If he gave everything, it still would not be enough. One of the reasons why we take price tags off our gifts is not because we are ashamed of what we paid for them, but because we do not wish to establish a proportion between our gift and our love. When, therefore, a a man gives a young woman gifts, his gifts do not make her more precious But they make him less inadequate. By giving, he is no longer nothing. The gift is his perfection, not hers. Worship in like manner is our perfection, not God's. To refuse to worship is to deny a dependence that makes us independent. Worship is to us what blooming is to a rose. To refuse worship would be like a rose cutting itself off from the sun and the earth. Or a student denying that history can teach him anything. To withhold admiration from one who deserves it is a sign of a jealous, conceited mind down deep in his heart man who refuses to worship God knows that he is not a creator he even knows that he could not be godless if there were no God God made you to be happy he made you for your happiness not his God would still be perfectly happy if you never existed. God has no need of love for his sake for there's nothing in you of and by yourself which makes you lovable to God. As a matter of fact, most of us poor creatures are very lucky if we receive any affection from human beings. Why is it that God finds us lovable? It is because he puts some of his love into us. That is how we are to find everyone else lovable too. When we put some of our love into them, then they become lovable. God does not love us, therefore, for the same reason that we love others. We love others because we need. We live in poverty. Someone has to supply our lack. But God does not love us because he needs us. He loves us because he puts some of his love into us. That is why we are valuable. When, therefore, God asks us to love him with our whole heart, Whole mind, your whole soul. It is because he wants us to be happy.
0: God. You are listening to Bishop Sheen presents here on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me this week to uh, learn our faith together. And I would invite you to bring a friend next week and to share. Uh, the good news that uh, you hear each week on bishop sheen presents i want to thank our partners at radio maria uh, in the united states especially of course the many stations that uh, carry our broadcast in louisiana ohio mississippi florida pennsylvania texas and wisconsin and of course i don't want to forget our good friends in uh, australia and the philippines and the united kingdom uh, and again, I have my few friends, I have a few local friends who listen up here in Canada on FM 98.5 CKWR. And so again, greetings to everyone and God love you and God keep you. Now, I will say that I try to answer as many uh, inquiries I receive in my email box. Um, people who visit the website bishopsheentoday.com uh, write me notes and ask me questions. And so uh, please know that I do answer my mail. And so uh, don't be afraid to drop me a line or ask me a question. Uh, Again, the website bishopsheentoday.com. And so uh, again, we're here to do what we can to serve. And uh, of course, we're trying to share uh, the wisdom of Archbishop Sheen all over the world. So uh, again, your help for praying for us, especially uh, for our apostolic work is very much appreciated. My dear friends, until the next time that we meet, may I continue to share with you this blessing from the Book of Numbers that uh, I have uh, ended my broadcast with for uh, close to 20 years. Um, It's just a a scripture passage that is near and dear to my heart, and we need, uh, of course, to pray this beautiful prayer. And I, I think of the devotion to the Holy Face, which many of you have, And again, it just ties in so beautifully. And so may I say to you, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. Have a great week, my friends. God love you.